This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to our first session of Dialogue Gospel Study for 2022. It's January 9th, and we're starting at our new time, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 11.30 a.m. Mountain, with J. Kirk Richards. Uh, and I know there's been a little bit of confusion this morning, but um, looks like a number of you have um, found us at the right time and place. Uh, there's no perfect time, of course, to, to do this now that a lot, uh, most of us are, are back at um, in-person meetings. Um, but this works with our usual team's church schedules, which includes uh, myself, Rebecca Deschwinitz, uh, and fellow Dialogue Foundation board members, Chris Kimball and Michael Austin. So we'll see how this goes and, and hope to have um, many of you who have been with us before and always know that these are being recorded. So if you can't make it, if this doesn't fit with your schedule uh, this year, um, we're, uh, we'll still uh, be here for you. Uh, we're really looking forward to exploring the Old Testament this year with you and with fabulous people like um, J. Kirk Richards. If you're joining us for the first time, we invite you to check out our previous lessons. Again, they're all available as both podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com. There you can also find the entire 56 years, I think, of the journal's scholarship, essays, uh, sermons, poetry, fiction, and art. As always, we invite you to support the work and vision of dialogue. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Find out more about how you can help us create a fund that secures the future of dialogue at givetodialogue.com. For today's gospel study lesson, if you are live with us on Zoom, you're welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat, especially as you're invited to do so by our teacher. We will also be following along, taking note of comments that show up on Facebook where we are also live. We are thrilled to start off our New Testament series exploring the story of creation, fittingly, with J. Kirk Richards. Kirk was born into a musical family of Provost Tree Streets in 1976. Young Kirk took French horn lessons at the BYU Harris Fine Arts Center, where art exhibits began to fuel his interests in visual arts. He served a mission in Rome, Italy, and then earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree from BYU's Visual Arts Studio Program. At BYU, he met Amy Tolk from Tennessee. Amy's father, physicist Norman Tolk, was an early contributor, uh, I believe, in the very in the second year of dialogue. Uh, the two are now married with four children and four cats. Kirk's favorite church callings have centered around teaching and music. He currently serves as a backup board organist. Kirk was a primary consultant during the creation of what was known as the Mormon Arts Center Festival in New York City and of Written Vision in Provo. He is a longtime board member of the Mormon Arts Foundation. He founded the Vision of the Arts Fund, which facilitates grants and scholarships to LDS artists. He created JKR Gallery and Art Academy in Provo. Kirk's artwork can be found in religious publications and for some lucky folks in their private collections. 
he is an advocate for Big Tent Church and for artwork that opens Christian possibility. We are so very grateful and excited to have Kirk with us. As is true with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialect Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Our opening prayer today will be offered by Michelle Franzoni Thorley. Uh, Michelle creates art that focuses on the ancestral power to heal. She is a self-taught artist who has claimed power by embracing her Mexican-American heritage and her experiences as an LDS woman artist. She is passionate about plants, family history, and the stories of women. At the end of the lesson, the closing prayer will be given by Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Dr. Finlayson Fife is a licensed therapist who specializes in working with LDS couples on sexuality and relationship issues. But her real claim to fame is that she and her husband, John, are longtime friends and ward members of Linda and Chris Kimball in uh, the many permutations that being part of such a community entails. Each other's Sunday school teachers, Linda's favorite visiting teacher, ministers, and friends. We begin with music and not just any music for this beginning. Requiem P.A. Yesu, composed and conducted by John Rutter and performed by Alice Halstead and the Cambridge Singers with the Aurora Orchestra. <clears throat> Dear God, we come before thee today to thank thee for community and to thank thee for vulnerability and for truth-telling. Father, we express gratitude for the Holy Spirit, and we ask that we have the Spirit to not only to comfort us, but to help us feel uncomfortable when we learn of the struggles of the marginalized in our communities. Father, please help us to become the new creatures that thou would have us be, the best versions of ourselves. And we ask that thy spirit be here in our lesson today to touch our hearts and help us to grow. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do I jump in now? Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for the uh, invitation to participate. And I want to thank Michelle and Jennifer for being here as well. They really mean a lot to me. And um, the things that I've learned and, and, and am continuing to try to learn uh, from them have been really important to me. So thank you. Um, I think I was, I, I'm a little bit out of my depth. I have a giant respect for the academics and thinkers that um, do put on these dialogue lessons and have benefited so much from their knowledge. And I'm just going to do my best as a, a guy who likes to paint paintings to uh, convey some of my thoughts. And I'm also hoping that 
that Michelle and Jennifer may uh, contribute a few thoughts if their voices are up, up, up for it. So, um, but let me share my screen here. I'm going to show you a couple of recent paintings. Well, first of all, we're going to talk today. The assigned topic is, I believe, two weeks of the Come Follow Me um, lesson. So we're going to be talking about Genesis 1 through 4, Moses 1 through 5, and Abraham 3 through 5. If you have questions or comments, like Rebecca said, please send those in and, and we'll talk about them. Um, let's see. So let me just show you a recent painting I did. I believe I was asked to do this partly because I'm really interested in the creation story and particularly as it's been depicted in art. Um, this painting on the left is called Breath of Life, subtitled From the Dust. And this painting was done in 2011. So about 10 years ago, uh, I did this painting. And then I just finished the painting on the right, entitled The Creation of Eve. Here is the Breath of Life on display at an exhibit at BYU, at the BYU Museum of Art. I think this was around 2018, maybe. Um, and the, this is my friend, Michelle Quist, standing in front of the painting. And for a while it resided at her house. And so Michelle is part of the story of making this painting possible. She was the one that lent it to BYU for the exhibit. The reason I, I'm just trying to think what order we want to talk about this, but the, the reason I wanted to do this painting is because of course, in our theology, we have in the LDS theology, we believe in a heavenly mother. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that. But basically, you know, the two major um, visuals that I'd had growing up of this event were Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, where God the Father extends his uh, hand out towards Adam. And... Um, and then, of course, the temple where uh, 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 God, where God and um, Christ are the principal creators. So I wanted to to create an image that included a female deity in it. The painting went on to reside later at Nylon McBain's house. And here we are at Nylon's, my son and I, uh, hanging the second painting, which uh, Nylon was good enough to 
purchase and thus the two paintings are together in the same home in the same collection. So I don't know, how do we want to, we want to talk about that? I guess what I would like to do is if you have any thoughts or questions about either of these paintings, maybe you can start to think about those or, or type those in. And um, similarly, I'm gonna, going to show you a painting by Michelle and ask Michelle to talk about it. Maybe tell us the title, some of her thoughts about choice and, um, and then you can be thinking about questions you might ask Michelle about her painting. And um, we'll go from there. Hi. <laughs> um, thank you so much for inviting me to come uh, be with you all today. And uh, Kirk, thank you for letting me share this painting. I. Um, this painting actually came to me in a dream. And at the time I had no idea how to paint at all. I've never really painted with oil paints very much and I've never ever painted a person before. Um, and I remember having the dream and then wanting to hand off the idea to a, an artist, a professional artist uh, who could maybe paint it for me. And then I got a really strong impression that, that God wanted me to paint it myself. Um, and so this process was really scary for me. And at first I just started off watching YouTube videos. Um, but then I got the courage one day to uh, ask Kirk to help me. Um, and he said yes, which I was very surprised by and very <laughs> intimidated by. But I love, um, you know, Growing up, I had a very difficult childhood and um, I knew that there was opposition in all things. Um, things definitely weren't always easy. And even in the middle of really hard things, there was joy. Um, so this painting of Eve is actually right before she bites the fruit or right after, like the moment, like as her teeth sink in and the juice, um, you know, fills her mouth. This is that moment where she has this clarity that there's two sides. Um, and so if you see on one side, there's a shadow on her face, which she's in the garden of Eden. Um, and then the other side, there's a light shining on her face, which means she's enlightened. Um, you might also know on her right shoulder, she has a white robe. And then, um, on the, on the side in the Garden of Eden, her hair's down and loose and just carefree. And then on the side in the, the real world is um, a braid that she, her hair's up and ready to go. Um, each of the flowers represent something in her crown. Um, basically the whole painting, there's symbolism in each of the plants about her journey and learning about opposition and all things. Um, it was also really important to know uh, for me to have representation. I wanted to see Eve as my myself and my ancestresses. And um, so I wanted to paint something with definite, you know, Mexican influences. And um, yeah, I don't know, maybe questions, but <laughs> thank you, Kirk. 
I'd love to hear from you, Michelle and Jennifer, just some of the things that we can learn about agency, maybe the difficulty that comes along with that, or what can we take from the creation story from Eve? Like we know that through a lot of Christian history, um, Eve was blamed uh, for taking us out of paradise. Um, but what, in, I guess in my own preparations for the story, that's one of the central uh, things that I like to take away from it. And yet in preparing for this lesson, uh, I kind of went in other directions and I, I'm interested in hearing from you about the importance of choosing. Do you want to jump in here, Jennifer? Sure. I mean, I <clears throat> I feel a little unprepared, but but uh, for I'll just say a few thoughts, and then I mean, I first I I love both of these portrayals. They're they're quite moving, actually. Um, it, it's just that it moves me so much. Kind of speaks to how much we've missed the the feminine um, deity. And um, so I'm sorry, <laughs> feeling emotional just looking at these. Um, because I, th I think there's been for so many of us this kind of feeling of something missing, but you can't quite figure out what it is. And then when you see the portrayal of feminine strength and beauty, um, it, it, it helps you know that this has been something that so many of us have been longing for. Um, so I, I appreciate both of these paintings very much. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking right now at Michelle's work because it's what's up on the screen and um, I love it. You know, I, I think that for me, the creation story, and I remember struggling with some of my Old Testament teachers at BYU <laughs> around this, um, she represented um, being smart to me. Like she understood what, the dilemmas were. She understood the catch 22 and she was kind of saying like, there was a lot of wisdom in her decision and yet it often was portrayed as her limitation. And um, maybe many women know that experience in a sense, but I, I always saw her as in some ways more willing to kind of uh, exert into the uncertainty, which I think is so fundamental to what is required of us as agents, as people on this planet, that, that we love the idea of obedience because there's, I think, a perceived safety in it. And certainly there's room for yielding to wiser understanding and to structures that are protective for us, but they only take us so far and I think that's very much in the creation story and that Eve is recognizing there is an inherent tolerance for uncertainty that you must um, yield to and, and, and engage in despite certainty, despite uncertainty. And that's what makes you wise and strong. And, you know, you see that in this portrayal, there's a kind of wisdom and strength and um, beauty and in her, um, in her demeanor, in her presence. So 
I think we're all afraid of agency and we also love it and hate to give it up. And, and it's just because there's that paradox in it. And I think the creation story captures a lot of that. Um, I, one of the things I love about Eve is she was the first person to recognize evil. And she was like, you know, looked at Satan. I know thee now. I, thou art Lucifer. Like she knew who he was. She knew evil and she spoke it out loud and named it and said, you are evil. And I think about that in the realm of social justice, where a lot of times, you know, if we grew up around privilege and safety, like even the garden of Eden, we don't always know, but like being able to say, I can see that that law or the way that those people are treated, I can see that that is evil. And maybe I don't know what to do about it, or I don't have all the answers, but just to be able to name it as evil. Like when we see children being taken away from their mothers at the border, we know that's evil. And being able to see evil and name it, um, I think there's a great power in that. And that's the first step in moving things towards becoming better and more equitable. So. I really, um, that's something I love about Eve. Wonderful comments. Thank you. I knew that it would be better to turn the time over to you than, than be speaking myself, but let's uh, keep going if I can. How do I get it to go to the next slide here? Oh. Press the button. Okay, so I kind of, in a recent um, podcast, just said Elohim is plural, and that answers the reason that we have, we can justify depicting a, a heavenly mother. But I wanted to go into a little bit more depth and actually do a little bit more research. So this is, uh, I do my research on TikTok, which I highly recommend, uh, especially Dan McClellan's, um, his account. He says, <clears throat> roughly, there's a paraphrase, that Elohim means deity, deities are divine. It can be used with a singular or with plural reference. According to a theory by Joel Burnett, Elohim is a concretized abstract plural, meaning the plural was originally used to create the abstract concept of divinity. But through frequent use in reference to specific deities, it became concretized and began to refer to deity or deities in the singular or plural. And we can determine what it refers to in its context. The abstraction is not marked for gender, nor is, it, nor is the concretized form. So it may refer to male or female. Another thing I've been learning a lot from uh, Dan um, is that early... Israelites actually believed in a, a pantheon of deities and um, and certainly they there there were feminine deities among them this kind of this verse right here is one of the ones that is highly discussed with this regard Genesis 1:26 God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. 
Now, one of the things I've been studying in preparation for this lesson is the Bible with and without Jesus, how Jews and Christians read the same stories differently by Amy Gillivine and Marx V. Brettler, I believe is the hiding behind there. The answer to who is us in Genesis 1.26 depends on the question we ask. And they say that for some Jews, uh, especially for Jews at the time, they would have seen that us as the divine court, in other words, the pantheon of gods and angels in heaven, and that God, uh, that, that, that that pantheon is talking together, or that God is talking to those that surround God in heaven and saying, let's, let us create <clears throat> man, and, uh, man and woman to be like us. For some maybe more recent Jews, God, they justify that by saying God, who we now believe is uh, the, the one and only God, is in consultation with the Torah. And so that is, it's the word and God that are the us. Christians, and this is actually news to me that Christians would have seen the Trinity uh, in that us. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, and the authors of the, of the book say that also pastoral teaching may determine that God is modeling cooperation. And feminists might locate lady wisdom here. And I think I really find fascinating this connection between LDS theology and, uh, and feminism, the idea that there is you know, that, that a mother is there um, bringing a female presence to the very beginning. And I like also that the authors say these explications are not mutually exclusive, even if um, perhaps less justifiable historically, they are certainly justifiable theologically. Um, yeah, I do, I do want to mention this. I want to mention it for a couple of reasons. So I was this week asking people on social media about what, what their takeaway was from the creation. And one of the people that I communicated with said that, um, that before my day back before 1980 in the temple, the, that the creation of man and woman was a figurative symbol that we can learn from. And uh, that really kind of surprised me. And so I did look that up and, and found it on there. And oh, I actually didn't, I believe the actual words are simply, simply figurative. And why is that important? I think that that is important both from the standpoint of creating a big tent church, welcoming in all those who are interested in creating Zion and those that maybe are literal and maybe those that are finding more benefit uh, reading this kind of story as allegorical. And I think another thing that we can take from this um, idea that it's simply figurative is that this is a story 
that we create um, our understanding of who we are from. And as such, as an allegory, we can mold that allegory. And I'll talk, talk a little bit more about that, but I think that comes into play as the spiritual creation that we learn about in Moses. We create spiritually the story that then ends up playing out physically. Another really good resource that I recommend is Mindy Brown's uh, Even Adam. And I bought this also this week in preparation for this lesson and got into it a, a, a bit and I need to get into it more, but she clearly has done a lot of research and echoes uh, a lot of contemporary research on the, these stories and, and definitely presents it from a, a faithful Mormon or Latter-day Saint perspective. One, here's a chart from her book that talks about the different uh, interpret the different translations of the word helper. And uh, we can really get caught up in a whole history of justifying dominance uh, because of the Adam and Eve story. And I think that reading some of these definitions is, is helpful, but it also goes back to what is the story that we are creating as a community and telling ourselves, what are we spiritually creating that's going to play out physically long-term? A helper comparable to him, a helper who is just right for him, a helper suitable for him, a helper fit for him, a helper corresponding to him. I love this paragraph from the Levine book. The Lord God who cares about this creature, that is Adam, realizes it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. The first word helper does not imply subordination. It may be used of an equal or even someone superior. It appears in popular personal names such as Ezra, Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, uh, helper. Certainly we wouldn't uh, ascribe the Lord as being, as us being dominant to the Lord, right? Or men being dominant to the Lord or women being dominant to the Lord. In other, in other words, helper, there is no equivalence or insinuation of helper being lesser. Uh, it also describes God, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Um, I don't know, maybe, should, how do I go back? There we go. Are there, Rebecca, are you seeing any thoughts or questions you wanna discuss? Yeah, so lots, <laughs> lots of comments. Um, um, I'm really struck by this idea and others as well about what is the story that we are creating? Uh, and I'm thinking too about these different representations of Eve and of the creation um, and, and kind of what those are meant to do in our theology, in our belief, in our everyday lives. Um, and maybe, maybe Michelle and, and you want to kind of talk about um, some of the symbolism and the ways that you have now embodied and created Eve in this story. Uh, something else that I'm thinking about that I, that I also think goes with some comments I'm seeing 
um, is I'm really struck by, first of all, Michelle's beautiful prayer this morning. Uh, and she talked about the spirit as both the comforter and helping to helping us to, um, to be uncomfortable. And then she talked about creating this image of Eve as a scary process. And that fits so beautifully with, um, with what Jennifer was saying. And then what Michelle was saying about, um, kind of uncertainty and moving from the shadow to enlightened enlightenment and light, um, and, um, kind of perceived safety versus, um, you know, kind of taking a chance and doing something that's scary, that takes us away from what is known. Um, anyway, that's kind of all over the place, but uh, maybe you have something to say in response. Yeah, Michelle, is there anything that you want to say about your painting as, uh, what's the word, like a, well, as this uh, spiritually creating, like, what do you, what kinds of things do you want to see come out of this statement that you've made in the painting, Michelle? What kind of world do you want to create through your, the message that your painting conveys? Well, I can tell you that when I painted the painting, I did not feel that I would have any sort of power or influence to <laughs> create any sort of new world, but I, I really did paint. Oh, you just got muted, Michelle. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah. I definitely um, created the painting, you know, for women of color, specifically, you know, Latine women that, um, that we could see ourselves in, in the role of Eve. Um, you know, each one of the flowers in her crown represents something, uh, you know, power or gift that I believe all women have. Um, you know, there's the gladiola, which is the gladiator flower. And it's called that because it looks like a sword. Um, and just Eve had this warrior kind of strength. Um, but also I, the painting was made in answers to my own questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, and, you know, why is there opposition in all things? In all the things, why? <laughs> like, why does it have to be that way? Um, and why do some people suffer more than others? Like, these were questions that I had in my brain and my heart. And the painting was kind of me working them out, like, just there's this duality to life and uh, comfort is not always the answer. Um, and sometimes we need to be uncomfortable to give others comfort. Um, and that as women, we just have this, this ability, this divine ability from our mother Eve to be able to handle, I was going to swear, but <laughs> be able to handle a lot of really crappy things. Um, and um, I just wanted other women to feel, I guess, infused with the strength and also to be like, I see you and I see that what you're doing is really hard. And you have these divine gifts that, that is going to help you be able to push through it. Because I look back at my own family history and my ancestresses, my female ancestors, and I literally do not know how they survived enslavement. I do not know how they survived colonization. I do not know how my ancestresses survived 
so much harm and violence and poverty and starvation. So many things. I don't know how they did it, but somehow they did because I'm here today. And I know that's just like this trickling down through this mitochondrial DNA to, to women today, uh, especially women of color. I just want to say, as I've watched Michelle, as I've watched you step out of, you know, into discomfort and make paintings that say important things and then use words to also convey those meanings and that that has been changing the world. It's been changing my world and it's been changing the world, uh, our little world of uh, LDS artists and, and much, and beyond that, as I see people interact with you on Instagram and other places, I know that, um, again, that, that, that because you, you're willing to do those hard things that you are spiritually creating something that will bring about a f physical changes and, and betterment for our community. So I just want to say thank you for doing that. Yeah, Kirk, I, I, I'd like to bring in a question here. Uh, maybe I'm assembling several things. I am assembling several things. I mean, one of the questions is about your own journey, seeing some um, change over time, more, more attention to these uh, topics of today in more recent work. Uh, but that takes me back to, um, well, a question Andy Pitcher Davis asks, but um, I'm looking at the two paintings, Michelle's and yours, or, or three, however many you count that. And uh, Michelle's is almost iconography and yours is impressionistic and it, and it raises a kind of almost a theological question. What are you doing here um, in terms of uh, pinning things down? I mean, I, I, Andy asked the question, do we confuse Eve as mother in heaven? Um, and you quoted some, um, an, an author saying, we don't need to pin that down. We, all of these interpretations could be valid. And I, I, I guess the question is back to both of you is, um, what, how do you think about um, pinning things down the way they get to be in words, the way they get to be in, uh, in, a, in a doctrinal exposition um, in, in your art? And both of, both, both of these works um, be, are, are not representational in the way that tries to pin things down quite that way. Yeah, I, I think that part of my goal as a, an artist of religious and Christian themes is to take out some of the pins or at least like open up or reopen possibilities. Um, I think that Joseph Smith did that in many ways, reopen the possibilities. I think that's one of the reasons we talk about Heavenly Mother and, uh, you know, most other conservative Christian groups don't. Uh, of course, I, don't, I wouldn't 
describe Joseph as conservative, but I think our church community certainly has gone that direction, as do most. So I guess in some some ways, I feel like art has the capacity and responsibility to reopen or open dogmatic doors that have been closed. Um, because I think there is, uh, there's kind of a, I guess I call it, what, what do I call it? I, I think that there's a dogmatic evolution where th things become increasingly closed. And um, most of that is man-made and man-imposed. <laughs> uh, uh, and I think, you know, you couldn't say women are included in that, but it might mostly be man-imposed. Um, so my goal in being, for example, leaving faces less defined or trying things in many different ways, you'll see I've done other creation series that look very different from this. I've done uh, images of Christ that look very different from one another. And that's always my own search for trying to get at some truth. And, uh, and I'm never quite settled in most cases. I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but. One of the things that the, um, the Come Follow Me manual said to do was to compare, to compare the different uh, versions. So I just wanted to briefly go over that. Again, I'm not a scholar, so most of this is me doing a little bit of research, but also a lot of it's just like reading through these, the actual chapters in the scriptures. So Genesis 1, so there are actually two uh, stories of the creation, right? And I guess most academics know this, but maybe most lay people like me, this is kind of new information. So Genesis 1 to 2, verse 3, that's kind of where the split is. We've got, I think some of the biggest differences are, well, let's just kind of skip through. Most likely this account came during the Babylonian exile, affirming monotheism in contrast to Israel's polytheistic conqueror. So they're in Babylon and they're like, we don't want to be like these people that have all these gods. So we're actually going to hone in on monotheism. And in this account, it provides stability and hope to the community displaced from their homeland, the temple destroyed. It affirmed the grandeur of their God, the goodness of humanity, and the promise of Sabbath rest. The earth is created in seven days in that account. In the second account, Genesis 2, five, uh, two verse 5 through chapter 4, uh, that the earth is created in one day. God fashions man out of clay, then animals. And they're like, well, wait, none of these animals are going to be a good help me for man. So we need uh, to create woman. So that's, you know, those accounts are very different from each other in many ways, but um, fascinating to read together. Moses chapter one through five it establishes Moses as the literal author of the creation story. One thing that struck me that I didn't really respond to that well is that God seems very boastful in Moses and Abraham. Moses is tempted, but doesn't transgress. Um, there's prophes uh, he prophesies the coming forth of another prophet like Moses. 
Christianity is embedded directly into the creation story. So if we read the Genesis accounts, there is Christianity is not uh, necessarily present in them. But as we read Moses, we read things like Adam and Eve were created in the image of my only begotten. <clears throat> Therefore, Jesus is central. Um, the thing that I really loved, and that I'll talk about a little bit more as we wrap up, is things are created spiritually before they're created physically. Competing plans are introduced. Adam and Eve, uh, so aprons of their own. I'd, I'd have to go back and read that one because I don't remember that one that well. Multiple Eves. This is the, the idea is introduced that there are lots of Eves and the Lord names them. Uh, sacrifices and ordinances are kind of incorporated. Oops, sorry. Excuse me, I pressed the wrong button. Here we go. Abraham establishes Abraham as another literal author of the creation story, reconciles astronomy with the creation story, preemptively addresses concerns about time discrepancies of the creation story. Um, to me, this feels a, kind of like a spiritual creation of Joseph's dealing with concerns of his day when people were wondering about the literal, uh, you know, the literality of the creation story and how could it possibly be literal if they're talking about days and that's addressed in Abraham. Competing plans, obedience is lionized, nobility pre-existed this earth life. Plural gods is emphasized in one of the chapters it says gods, 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 gods rather than God, singular. Oops, and the last thing, Adam names everything after Eve is created. And, you know, the feminist in me doesn't like that. Um, if I think that this is drawing from the Genesis, the second Genesis account in which Adam's created first, the animals are then created, and he names each of them, and then Eve is created. And that's why Adam is able to name everything. But in Abraham, it, it's, it's not ordered that way. So when I think about that Israelite, uh, the Israels or the, the Jews in captivity in Babylon, and I think about what kinds of existential questions they would have. Why are we alive? Why are a man and a woman unashamed to be naked together? Why does a man leave his parents to create a new family with his wife? Why do women make decisions that make life difficult for men? Why do snakes exist, especially dangerous ones? Why is there violence and murder in the world? Why is giving birth so dangerous and painful? Why do we have to work so hard for food and shelter? How can I get my wife to do what I want her to do? Can I be in charge? Can I own her? Why is she more brave than I am? Like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not living in that world, but I, when I try to put myself in my world, I think about some of these exist, existential questions. And I feel like those are answered by... Uh, God's proclamation when Adam and Eve are discovered having eaten of the fruit, he says, because he talks to the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed and you'll walk on your belly. There will be enmity. Uh, there will be violence. Labor will be hard. You know, giving, bringing children into this world is, is painful. Um, the ground is cursed. You're going to toil and work just to, to make, you know, to subsist in this life. This is the state that we live in. You know, our 
we won't have the same kind of difficulties that they had when they were in captivity in Babylon, but we live in, uh, an, you know, in a, a, a in a, our existence is so hard, just like Michelle was talking about opposition in everything. Um, and so what is the answer to that? What is the answer to being in this fallen state? And I think one of there, there are many answers in the scripture, but I just picked a few. And so from the old Testament, we get the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bind up the broken hearted, to open the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the Lord, um, to comfort those that mourn, to give people beauty for ashes. Uh, I'm hoping that Jennifer in a minute will talk about relate religion, faith, and atonement as uh, metabolizing the bad and, and bringing good out of it. And this is what I see in each of these answers, Christianity answers, there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Um, what did I wanna say about that? I can't remember. Well, this goes, let's skip that. Jesus uh, says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And I, I read that not only as about the resurrection, but as in uh, us being reborn and um, and a new breath of life coming into our daily actions and interactions. Restoration theology answers: For man is spirit; the elements are eternal, and spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy, and the work and glory of God is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Um, again, and, and, and more restoration theology. I, the Lord God, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. Jesus to Nicodemus, back to the New Testament, says except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they're old? Can they enter the second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, you've got to be born of the water and of the spirit. And um, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. And that is uh, an in this book, again, Jesus is making a play on words between or a parallel between um, wind and the spirit. So when we talk about the breath of life, the breath of life being infused into Adam and into Eve, this is similar to being born of the spirit. And I think that we can uh, be born of the spirit and have new life in Jesus. And not just at our confirmation, receiving the Holy ghost, but um, in our daily walk here is a little, I just wanted to show you this as a kind of a visual representation of the spiritual creation and the physical creation. And it, 
uh, obviously the sketch is also physical, but I just want to mention that in the creation, I, I wanted to do this painting for a long time. And it took me probably, I took me maybe five years after the breath of life painting to do this sketch of the creation of Eve. And then I sat on the sketch for another five years. And I, I think that a lot was a lot of essential things happened during, during those times of just waiting and thinking and trying to resolve uh, problems in my own head about how this would come about. And so that spiritual creation is again, something that leads to the physical creation. And I know we're getting close to time, but I wondered, Jennifer, do you, is there anything you want to, or would be willing to say about the state we're in and how, what religion does or what faith can do with regards to that state? Sure. There's so much. It's, I'm trying to think how to be helpful in the conversation because uh, there's so much, so many good ideas here. I mean, I think some of the ones that are standing out to me as I'm listening is, is, um, is just, you know, how challenging and painful it is to live, um, that it's full of adversity and hardship and difficulty. And I think when we are young in our development or kind of young in our experience, we can see that as something flawed, either about us or the world we're in, as opposed to an essential condition of development and capacity. And um, I, I do wanna be a little careful because I don't think that all suffering is good or that all suffering is necessary or that suffering is in any way fair. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about the limits of pleasure was the name of it. And I'm kind of that there is a kind of optimal <laughs> amount of struggle that allows us to move forward, but we can have too little and too much in terms of our, our development as people and our satisfaction. And so I don't mean to say that it's all, everything's always meant to be or as it should be by any stretch. I think what can be really challenging though is in the face of so much adversity or unfairness uh, it's very easy to step away or become cynical as opposed to this, you know, I think of it in terms of atonement and rebirth and believing in God and the good, despite the difficulty, despite the pressure on us to become cynical or withdraw or become hateful, that the moral courage is to keep extending ourselves into the uncertainty and to keep stretching for a world that is good in which there is more good to still be an agent of good even if you see the unfairness in it um i was just recently at a wedding and um it my my nephew was marrying a woman who's they were speaking about her father as somebody who'd had a lot of injustice in his life uh, within his own family, and yet he persisted in being kind and fair to other people when they needed help, 
when he could have used the injustice uh, to be cynical or withholding and he chose, you know, the good and just as a function of this man's moral character. And so I have one more thought and it just went away. Give me one second. Can't, I can't bring it back, but it, it's just, um, I just, I, I really, um, oh, I know. It's just this idea, and it was an idea that one of you, maybe it was Kirk, you said it, but, or maybe it was one of the passages you read, but so much about our faith is about kind of what are we taking from these stories, that it is a creative process and it's an effort to create more good. It comes through how we make sense of these narratives so I like the impressionistic aspect that you're talking about, Kirk, because it allows us to be in this reflexive developmental creative process as we're trying to get clear about who we are, what matters. It allows for our spiritual progression. But I think Zion is very much that creative process as a group striving to understand what is good, what creates greater good, to allow ourselves to be in development, to change our minds, to say, I think we got that wrong. This is closer to the mark. Because I, I think that's really ultimately what's asked of us as children of God is much more creative and uncertain. And I think that's a really fundamental part of our theology. Sorry, I'm there's roosters. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear those roosters, but they're loud. Um, so, um, so yeah, that, I just think that kind of is very close to our theology and an element, the more we embrace it, the stronger we'll be. Yeah, that is exactly what, what I was hoping to hear from Jennifer and I, so we should just end. I did, I'll, can I, can I say one more thing? Yes. Sorry. As you know, as an art student, uh, uh, studying with Kirk, you know, one of the things that I learned is like, if you want something to look really white and bright, you put it next to something as dark as you can and vice versa. If you want something to look really dark, you put it next to something that's light. And it always makes me think of this quote by Chieko Okasaki, where she says, as far as I'm going to butcher it, but as far as she knows that there won't be, you know, empty tummies in heaven, there won't be people without shoes in heaven. So if we want to fill a child, a starving child's stomach, we need to do it now. If we want to put shoes on people's feet, we need to do it now. And the contrast gives us the opportunity to look at the suffering of others and, and to, to, to do it now to help. Um, like why do bad things happen? Maybe that's so that we can be an agent of good. I don't know. Yes. Thank, yes. Thank you. I, I just want to say that my hope and my testimony moving forward is that we can again draw from this story and uh, those things that will enable us to breathe new life into our current life, that we will be able to. Um, choose the choose to create a spiritual story that will create the Zion that we hope to create in as a physical reality in the future. I think that that is one of the biggest lessons that I take from this spiritual creation that we have the agency to choose 
And, and that's the message I want to leave with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, I thank you, Chris. Are you thinking that we need to have some pull in some more comments and questions, or should we just officially close? I think we're kind of committed on time that okay. we should that we should close. But boy, I want to jump back in with some conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll carry on. But um, thank you, thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Michelle and Jennifer. Um, I'm especially thinking as we end about. Um, uh, just uh, again, Michelle's painting and, and both of you thinking about, um, you know, the story that we are creating about um, creation and its meaning for us. Um, and I'm so struck by, by thinking about this depiction of Eve, where she is choosing her new birth, taking this new breath of life um, and making this decision to enter into the light, to fully enter into the world and all its, um, pain. Um, uh, and there are lots of stories that, that, that we need, uh, today, um, about creation, um, that are different from what we've maybe imagined before. So uh, thank you. Uh, we hope you will join us again in two weeks on Sunday, January 23rd at 1130 a.m. Mountain Time as we continue the study of the Hebrew Bible uh, with Jana Reese. Then on January 30th, we'll be hosting our next dialogue and review focused on Mormonism and the arts with recent dialogue contributors Blair Osler, Gregory Brooks, Ron Richmond, and Esther Kandari. Um, also, for those of you um, who are members of the Dialogue Book Club, a reminder that tonight uh, uh, we'll get to chat with Charles Inouye. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then get on our website and sign up for Dialogue Book Club. Uh, Jennifer. Dear God in heaven, we're so grateful for this opportunity to gather together in this meaningful and uh, inspiring conversation about our origins, about who we are, about the beauty and strength in the feminine, the godliness of our feminine natures and for the truth of a mother in heaven um, that knows us and loves us and blesses our lives. And I um, personally am expressing deep gratitude for this wonderful community of people, of strivers, of seekers for what is true and the way that that um, makes us better and happier and um, gives us meaning in an often challenging reality. And please bless us with ongoing courage to, to live well, to do what is good, to keep seeking and, and hoping for, um, for the good and to do good to one another and to take deep responsibility for the creation of Zion within our own hearts, within our families and with each other. And, um, Thank you for all the good in the world. And please give us in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.